you'll understand here in a second. First thing, though, before I get to the rest of the month, don't forget time change next Sunday. So whatever you got to do, make a reminder on your calendar. Just make sure uh, you remind yourself of the time change. Otherwise, we'll start and it'll be about half full. <laughs> and then when class starts, everybody will show up and they'll just get to hear class for, for their sermon. Uh, but don't forget about that. So the fifth Sunday that's coming up, I have a special, I guess, series, if you, you want to call it that, in mind for that. Um, essentially, if we're going to have visitors here, I want to try to deliver some sermons directly tailored to somebody that may be unsure, questioning, trying to figure out their faith. Uh, and so if you've read this book, The Case for Christ, I want to do a series of lessons kind of adapted from that. So my plan is, is that Friends and Family Day, the last Sunday of this month, if we have visitors show up, I want a sermon that is aimed towards them wrestling with, is Jesus really a man? Did he really exist? Did he really die? Was he really raised? Because I want to deal with that up front with any guests and visitors that we may have this Sunday. And now, between now and then, this will be our last of this series for at least a while. And I want to kind of get into our theme a little bit before all the visitors show up uh, on the 29th or the 28th, whatever that is, of this month. So the sermons between now and then are going to be geared towards evangelism, how we do that, what that looks like, uh, hopefully in preparation for that at the end of the month. Well, the sermon this Sunday, I, I kind of talked about this with last one, but it's adapted from a question that we got from our question and answer class. And essentially, I, I thought this was a, a perfect thing because the question itself is pretty simple, but underneath the question, there's this bigger question and bigger discussion that I think the question itself kind of stems from. And so this morning, I'm going to start by looking at the question and then ultimately going to the bigger question that's underneath. Well, the question is simply this. Was it right for Gideon to test God? Now, if you don't know the story of Gideon, Gideon was one of the judges from the book of Judges. And in, Gideon, or in Judges, there's this kind of pattern that we see going on and on over again. Is essentially that God's people sin. After they sin, God allows them to be oppressed or punished for that sin. And then after the punishment, they cry out to God. And so God sends what the book of Judges calls a judge to deliver them from whatever it was that was going on. And Gideon was one of these judges. And, and you can see in Judges 6 where we get this story of Gideon, here's this pattern. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And then later on in verse 6, the people of Israel cried out to help for the, from the Lord. You see this pattern. And then the story of Gideon is the story of God working through him to deliver them from this oppression that they were facing. Now, if you want to, we're not going to go through all the details of Gideon's story, but I want to give you a quick overview. If you haven't heard the story of Gideon, it's basically like this. An angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and tells him, you are going to be the one that God is going to deliver his people through. Well, Gideon, kind of unsure of this, he has a conversation with him, and eventually he asks the angel of the Lord, can you stay around? I, I want to make a meal for you. And so he makes this meal and the angel of the Lord consumes it in fire and it's gone. And Gideon realizes that he was face to face with the angel of the Lord and that that message was from God. Well, shortly thereafter, God tells him, you're going to start by going and tearing down your family's altars. And Gideon does it, but with his own little twist, which we'll get to in a second. Well, after that happens, then 
Gideon kind of becomes unsure again. He's wondering, is this really God's message? And what we see and where this question comes from is that Gideon asked God. It is really what it is. He's asking God, is this really what's supposed to happen? Is this really what I'm supposed to do? And so his test is essentially this. He puts a goat skin or a goat fleece out on this rock. And he says, God, if, if this is what I'm supposed to do, I want there to be dew on the skin, but not on the grass. So the first night it happens. Well, Gideon, still unsure, or maybe not wanting to go through with it, asks a second time. And he says, I want this time for there to be dew on the grass around it, but not on the skin, and God grants it. And so from that, Gideon starts to muster up an army. So he musters up an army, and then God leads him through this process where they go from 30,000 soldiers down to 300. And then those 300 men, obviously with God working through every bit of this, they were able to rout the Midianites. Through clay jars and a torch and horns, they surround the camp and they make all this noise and the people freak out and they essentially kill each other in the process and run off. Well, Gideon follows them and he deals with some of these key players that were oppressing the people of Israel. And then at the end of this, there's a sad little twist for how we see the story of Gideon in. So this question, was it right for Gideon to test God? Was it right for him to go through this whole fleece thing? I want us to start by looking at Gideon's character. I want to look at him himself because I think we got to start with this because the book of Judges is, gives us several hints as far as how Gideon is and what his character is. So if you look at the first part of the story, when the angel of the Lord appears to him in chapter 6 verse 12, it says the Lord came, or the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the terebinth of Orphan. That's a tree. Okay, terebinth is a tree. Which belonged to Joash the Abizrite. And his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Well, see, what was happening is that these Midianites, when it was harvest season, they were coming and they were raiding and they were taking all this food. And so Gideon, he's beating out this wheat. Now, from English, and us, in our perspective, we're like, okay, he's doing it in a wine press. Why in the world is he doing it in a wine press? Well, here's what you need to know. Normally, the process of wheat went like this. You beat it to break it up, and then you take a threshing fork, and you throw it up in the air, and the chaff blows away, and then all the good stuff that you need falls down. Normally, this was done out in the open, because the more wind, the more that this can come through, the easier that process goes. But what we see is that Gideon is doing this in a wine press. Now, wine press, it was a closed-in space. It was kind of underground. There was always this upper part where the grapes were being squeezed and this under part where they were collecting this juice. And we see Gideon kind of hiding out, trying not to let the Midianites see what's going on. Now, the, the great irony and the kind of the laugh that you should get out of this is the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Yeah, he's standing up to the Midianites, all right. And this sets up what we see from Gideon for the rest of this. Is that he's called this mighty man of valor, not because of anything inherent in him. Not because of anything naturally by him, but instead by what is gonna, God is going to do through them. And if this is not enough, let's go on and look at some other stuff. So I told you that he was going to tear down the altar. Well, Gideon, he took the men of his servants. He did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it at night. 
Once again, we see here that he's, he's following what God is asking him to do, but he does it with fear and, and, and trembling and, and afraid. Well, we have the test of the fleece. We're going to skip over that for a second. But then later in chapter 7, as he gets these men whittled down to 300, the night before God speaks to him and says to him this, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, out of the outpost, and he armed the men who came to the camp. God knows. Gideon's afraid. And so God says, hey, if you're, if you're afraid, if you need, just go down and hear what they're saying about you. And he goes down and he hears the entire camp talking about how afraid they were of Gideon and of the Israelites. We see this throughout Gideon's story that he was someone who was afraid, who was unsure. Yes, he was called this mighty man of valor, but not because of anything about him, but because of what God was going to do through him. So now let's look at the actual test of the fleece. And let's look, because I think even this, you know, was he unsure of the call? Was, he, was it vague? Was it something that he had to clarify? No, not at all. In fact, just look at how Gideon says at the beginning in verse 22, Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. I'm sorry, that's, let's skip that. 636, Gideon said, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Even when he's talking about, even before he goes through this test, he already knows what God has told him to do. There's no question as to, is this what God wanted? And like that verse I showed a second ago, it was clear that he spoke face to face with God. He admitted it himself. So why was he asking? Why was he doing this test? Probably because he wanted out of it. Probably because he was hoping that through this, you know, something wouldn't go exactly right. And he'd say, well, you know, God didn't want it. You know, I, I asked for clarification and he didn't answer but not only that, so he does this, and then he does the first test, and then after that, before the second one, listen to what he says again. Let not your anger burn against me, but let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please. You know, he's, he's begging, he's asking. He realizes he knows the answer, and he knows he shouldn't be doing this, but his fear overwhelms him. His timidity, his unwantingness to do this he just can't help but ask again and make sure and this is why we have this test of the fleece was it right for Gideon to test God like this nothing about his character is something that we look at and we say man you really are a mighty man of valor you really are a man blazing forward this trail in faith in fact Gideon is an example of faith but almost barely so right it seems like he's doing this almost similar to Jonah against his will. He's, he's kind of being pulled along by God the entire way. But yet God shows grace. Now I mentioned there was a sad ending to this story. See, Gideon, he, he, he does this. And, and, and after it's all over, he, he conquers these Midianites and he kills these men that were oppressing them. And, and then we see this little story at the end of it that I think really shows you exactly what we need to know about this test and it goes like this so the people come up to Gideon and afterwards they want to make him king they say hey you've you've delivered us you be our leader you lead us and Gideon says to them 
I will not roll over you, and my son will not roll over you. The Lord will rule over you. And if you've read much of Judges and Samuel and Kings, this is exactly the thing, is that a king does not work out so well. A man, as your leader, will have flaws, will have faults, will not lead in the way that he should. But God, as a leader, is the ideal, is what we should strive for. So you look at this and you say, yeah, good job, Gideon, that's right. You've got it figured out. Don't be the king. You know, this is the, this is the way it should be. But then right after this, verse 24, Gideon said to them, but let me make a request of you. <laughs> It's like, oh, so close. If the story had only ended right there. But no, Gideon has this request. Every one of you give me the earrings from your spoil. Now, the earrings would have been made of gold or, or some fine metal. And, you know, he realized that everyone had this because of the conquering that they just did. And so, you know, just like a king almost, he, he kind of taxes the people. Well, what does he do with this gold? Was it just for money? No, it's, it's a little more sinister than that. It's a little sadder if you think about it. But in verse 27... Gideon made an ephod. Now, it's, understand, that word, I wouldn't have known this prior to a couple of classes where we went into this in more detail. But essentially, here's what the ephod was. The high priest, one person of the entire Israelite nation, had an ephod. And in this ephod, there was what was referred to as the instrument of decision, which essentially was two different colored rocks. And when there came this time where God's will wasn't clear or they wasn't sure how to do things, they would, they would pray and they would do sacrifice and they would do all this. The high priest, one person, mind you, one of these in all of Israel, and they would reach in. And they would, yes or no question, whatever it is, and they'd pull out and they would get an answer. Now, we've talked about this before, casting lots, right? These sort of ways, essentially, it was thought of as a way to break a tie. If you're unsure, if it's not clear, this was something that you go to. Now, Gideon, there's only one, all of Israel, it's for the high priest, he makes his own. Now, why in the world would he do that? The story went to his head. What all had transpired up to this point, he let boost his ego. He thought, I've got this special relationship with God. God can answer me directly. You know, I, I'm similar to the high priest in this way that God, if I ask him questions, he will return with these answers. And so he makes one. And, and it's pretty clear this was not something that should have been done because after it, it says all of Israel hoard after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Gideon allowed his ego to get to the point that just because God showed him grace with the fleece, he thought, yeah, I've, I've got this figured out. I, I've got this special relationship. I know that if I keep asking these yes or no questions and, and get these yes or no answers, that I've got this special relationship with God. But it's very clear this was never something that was intended to happen. Was it right for Gideon to test God with the fleece? No, not at all. But did God show grace and answer him anyway? Absolutely. You know, this just fits in with every other story that we read from Scripture. Every single one of us, all of humanity, we have our flaws. But yet God can show us grace and work through us anyway. Was it right for Gideon to test God? No. But then that leads to 
really the question that I think that is underneath, wanting to know whether this is something that we should do. And that's, can we know God's will? Is it possible for us to know God's will? Is it possible for us to know the things that are to come? These are the questions that we wrestle with. These are the things that are underneath us trying to figure out, is it okay for us to test God in this way? And I want to do this by looking at some of how the New Testament authors talk about God's will. When we say God's will, when we talk about God's will, let's be clear about what we're talking about. And let's look at some scriptures here to help us get a picture for what they're talking about. So first of all, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.19, But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find not the talk of these arrogant people, but of their power. Paul says, look, I'm going to come only if the Lord wills. But once again, 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. These are just a couple of the verses, but we see them talking this way about God's will in several, several instances where it seems like it's unsure. We don't know God's will. Well, okay, that's one side of the thing, but then there's the other side. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. See, there's part of God's will where it's almost like maybe we never will know. But then there's some things about God's will where it's crystal clear. Essentially, what we're talking about is two two different things. One is that the providence of God. God, we know from Scripture, nothing happens without God's allowing it. The whole book of Job is essentially exploring this idea that why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? We know that God is all-powerful. We know He is over all this. But why in the world do some things not go the way that they should? But then the other side of this is God's commanded will. God has a very clear idea of how things should be. God is full of grace and truth. God is just. God is love. But yet His commanded will is not always done. Just think about that, right? The the idea that God, he, He knows exactly how things should be. But yet He allows our will to override that. He allows our decisions to go against what He knows it should be. That's free will. And so essentially this talk about God's will is us wrestling with the difference between we know what God has commanded... But how come things don't turn out the way that they should? How come God's will is not totally done? If you look at the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is not yet fully enforcing His will. God's will is not done on this earth. You don't believe me? Just look around. God is clear about how things should be. But yet we live in this time where... For reasons we don't fully understand yet, His will is not totally done. So when we discuss, when we think about this idea of God's will, in some ways we're talking about two totally different things. And I think this passage in James 4, 13 through 17 really kind of gives us an idea for how to talk about these two things. James 4, 13 says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. See, James, just like Peter and Paul in their writings, makes it clear that we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know. Yes, in Scripture there have been times where God's will, the future, was shown to someone. And we have the revelation of John as a book that we look at as to what it is to come. But that is the exception. By a long, 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 long shot, we do not know what tomorrow holds. There are things that God knows about tomorrow that will never be revealed to us. And James says, look, if you try to boast in what these plans are, if you try to know the future, if you try to say, hey, this is going to happen, that boasting is arrogance. It's evil. The providence of God, what's going to happen tomorrow, those things we, we, we won't know until tomorrow gets here. So instead, we focus on today. Now this, this verse 17, you know, I, for a long time I wrestled with this. I was like, why is this here? You know, we use this in a lot of different circumstances. If you know what you should do and you don't do it, right? We, we even say that in prayers and different things like that. But why is this verse right here in this location? Because I think James wants to make it clear. I think God wants to make it clear that you already know what you should be doing right now. Don't worry about tomorrow. Instead, pray to God, right? We see this all throughout Scripture. Tomorrow is not something within our control. But today, as I'm alive and breathe, I know what God wants me to do today. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, if you fail to do it because you're too worried about tomorrow... For him, that is sin. If we get so caught up in trying to know the future, trying to know the providence of God, of what comes next, we're going to miss the opportunity to obey him and do his will today. That's knowing God's will. We know God's will because we know how things should go today. Yes, it'd be nice to know tomorrow, but... How many, how many of y'all know somebody that can lay out your tomorrow and the day after that? Not even the weathermen can. And they try their hardest just to get one aspect of tomorrow as close as they can. But we struggle because we don't know what tomorrow holds. So let's focus on today. Now even today, even trying to figure out God's will for today, that in itself is difficult, right? You know, the answer for, like Kevin said, the answer for everything is in Scripture. But yet, did God tell me what to wear this morning? Did God tell me which breakfast to eat? Did God tell me exactly everything of how my day should be laid out? Yes, we know there are principles, there are commands that govern most of what we do. But then there's that in-between. There's those things that we're not so sure about. Should I do A? Should I do B? Is this a good choice? Is that a bad choice? And now this is assuming that all of these things are not obviously commanded to do or against. How do we know about those things? How do we live this life with discernment? How do we live in such a way where we're wise doing God's will? 
I think one verse is one of the best places to start. Now, this discussion is all throughout Scripture. But Romans 12, verse 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, this will of God here... I don't think this is talking about the providence of God. I don't think this is talking about the future or, you know, if you're looking for that, you're looking for a crystal ball. You're not looking for God's will because God's will for today can be known. So how do we know that? How do we know God's will and all these little decisions that we make? The first thing is do not be conformed to this world. You know, this in and of itself could be an entire sermon series. If we wanted to break down all the different ways that the world has us conform to the things that it's done. Think about the way that we spend our time. Think about the things that we do for entertainment. Think about the things that we spend our time on. What about how we spend our money? Now think about that. Here in America, we have a certain way that we spend our money. There's expectations that we're going to buy this, we're going to buy that. Is that true all throughout the world? What about how we handle relationships? All of these things, if we really dig down deep, if we really go as deep as we can, what we see is that we do a lot of things, these things, not because of the the Word of God telling us exactly how to do them, but because we've slowly conformed to the culture and the people around us. And step one of knowing God's will for today is do not be conformed to the world. Don't allow culture and just because everybody else is doing it be the thing that decides your today if you're going to really do what God wants you to do today this is step one what are all the ways that the world has slowly got me to conform to the way that they do things so do not be conformed to the world the second one be transformed by the renewal of your mind now that word transformed it implies that it's not something that I do, right? It said it's be transformed. It's this outward force working through me. And if you look in the New Testament, this word transform is only used three times. And I think one of these shows us a very clear idea of what this process looks like. How is it that we are transformed? Well, I think it's this. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, Behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. How are we transformed? We're transformed by fixing our eyes on Jesus. We look at him, we look at his life, and we compare it. It's it's not rocket science. Don't be conformed, but instead be transformed by looking at Jesus. Okay, the world spends their time like this. Jesus spent his time like that. The world spent their money like this. Jesus maybe didn't even carry around money. The world handles their relationships like this. Jesus handled his relationships like this. And as we go through this process, as we don't allow ourselves to be conformed to the way that the world does things, and we transform our thinking by focusing on Jesus and comparing what he did to the world around us, the will of God becomes more and more clear. It's not a one-time process. It's not a one-time fix. It's not an easy plug-and-play solution. 
Because what follows this in Romans 12 too is that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Now this phrase, if you read this in different translations, this is the only part of the verse that has differences in how it's translated. And it's essentially because there's multiple ideas being communicated. And I think ESV does it best to break this out because one aspect of this is you've got to go out and you've got to do it. When you see Jesus lived his life like A and the world does it like B, you've got to go out and live like Jesus lived. Because you can't just sit in a vacuum and read his story and think, yeah, I know how it should be done. you got to go out and you got to do it. If action is not a part of this process, then you cannot claim to understand the will of God. And then that second part is discernment. Discernment. This vague thing, right? This hard to understand. How do you explain discernment? How do you have discernment? How do you give someone discernment? Just look at a couple of verses that talk about discernment. You know, Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Right? It's, it's this little slippery thing. You know, you can't just, here it is, have this. Hebrews 5, 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Understanding the Lord's will takes effort. It takes going out and doing. It takes failing occasionally. Right? It takes, I think this is right, but then when you try it and it doesn't work out, it takes humility to say, okay, that wasn't it. And I'm sorry for the damage that I've caused. Understanding God's will is not something done in a vacuum. It's not something done in a room with a pile of books. It's something done by going out and trying and looking and comparing and saying, this is how Jesus lived. I'm going to live like Him. This is how we understand God's will for us today. And then wraps up Romans 12 too with this. Giving us a nice little picture of what is God's will. Well, it's what's good. Right? Think about that. Most of the situations you come at, just, just ask yourself, what would be the good thing to do? Keeping in mind what we just said, not how the world says is good, not defining it by the world standards, but what, what did Jesus do that was good? Let me emulate that. Acceptable. You know, I feel like we almost, we, in our, today's world, we have to put in that little caveat. We have to put it in because if we just read this as literal as it is, well, what is acceptable? Well, there's a lot of things that are acceptable. Is that what is being communicated here? No, it's what's acceptable to God. It's what's acceptable by His standards. Not the world's standards that says, you just live life how you want to. That's fine. That's good. Just do it. You be you. But no, what's acceptable to God? What's His standards? And then last, what is perfect? It's almost this nice little building, right? We start with just what's good. Then let's, let's really dig down and, well, what's, what's acceptable to God? And let's really strive towards, well, what is, what is the perfect thing to do in this situation? And the answer to that is, well, what, what would Jesus do in that situation? We may not be able to know tomorrow or God's providence of what's coming down the line. 
God is not a crystal ball just waiting to tell us the future. But God has made clear what his will is for you today, how you should live, how we should act. And it's simple. It's like Jesus. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, looking to Christ and being transformed into his image. And by testing, we got to go out. We got to do it. We got to try it. Yes, we may fail. But that's a part of the process. God's grace, as we saw with the story of Gideon, God's grace is enough for those failures. But we got to go out and we got to try. One thing that is really clear about God's will. We read it earlier. God's will is your sanctification. If you don't know what that word is, it's you being made holy, set apart for Him. God created us not just to live our own life, not just to you do you. God created us to be set apart and holy for His service, for His will. That's what we were made to do. God's will is that we are sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. How? Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you haven't obeyed His call, God's will for each and every one of us is to be washed in Jesus' blood and cleansed and set apart for His work. If you're here today, you can do that. Believe Jesus Christ. Confess Him as Lord. Repent of your sins and be willing to be baptized, showing not just that, hey, you got wet and you're clean that day, but to show that you are starting a new life only by the power of God. Or if you're here today and you're a Christian, you need the prayers of the church. Whatever your need is, come now as we stand and sing.